You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. We're in the midst of really not in the midst of it, we're in the beginning stages of a sermon series that has taken us through the fall called the Jesus Encounters. And what this sermon series is, it's a panorama, it's a flyover of the Gospel of Luke. Um, We're not looking at Luke verse by verse, we're looking at various encounters that Jesus has in the Gospel of Luke, and he has many And we're trying to discover in these encounters what we can learn from Jesus and about Jesus and things that are specifically talked about within the encounter, okay? So that's what we're doing today. Like I said, we're in Luke 5. We're looking at verses 17 to 26. Let me read it, press pause, pray, and start walking through it. It begins, on one of those days while he, that's Jesus, was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law, keep them in mind, we'll come back to them, were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea. Uh, Galilee and Judea are regions in Israel, think provinces, but smaller. And also from Jerusalem, which is located in Judea, it's the epicenter of all things Jewish. And the Lord's power to heal was in him, that's again Jesus, just then. Some men came carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him in on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God. And they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. Let's pray together. And so, Father, we now come to your word in this gathering of your people, and we want to hear from you. Um, throughout all time, the, the issue is, has not been you not speaking. The issue has been whether we have ears to hear. You always speak. You're always near. So I pray that we would have ears to hear what the spirit that you sent, the spirit that breathed out this book, speaks so we can hear. And not only hear, heed, do um, as we leave so, so do a work. May you be pleased with this time. Help me as I teach. Um, I need this as much, as much, if not more, than others here. So let me hear again what you have to say through this text. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, when I come to a text and I'm, you know, preparing a message, uh, I 
try to figure out how do I best approach this? And when you come to events like this, uh, there are a lot of different ways that you can approach it. But what I want to do this morning is I want to key in on one verse and build the whole message on it. And that, that verse I want you to look at one more time is verse 20, where it says, seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Seeing their faith. Is that possible? Is it possible to see faith? If, if I came up to you and I said, yes, I'm a man of faith, could you see that? Or would you just have to take my word for it? Um, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, excuse me, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1, has what many point to as a biblical definition of faith. I won't take you there, but in Hebrews 11:1, 1, the author defines faith as conviction of something hoped for and assuring, assurance of what you cannot see. But I'll ask the question again, can you see conviction? C- can you see assurance? Don't you simply have conviction and have assurance? Well, let's unpack it. But before we go forward, let's take a step back, especially for those of you who aren't convinced of the Christian faith or trying to figure out some things as it relates to the Christian faith. Is faith, the whole discussion of faith, important to Christianity? Well, yes. It's, it's very important to Christianity. That's why we're going to spend some time talking about it this morning. The Bible teaches, here, here's why it's important. The Bible teaches that we receive grace and forgiveness from God through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and only that way. It, it's faith alone that, that enables us. It's faith alone that is the portal or the conduit or the hose, so to speak, that enables us to receive the grace that is ours from God in Jesus Christ. You can't work for it. You can't pay for it. You can't be born into it. It's only by faith and faith alone. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. A whole reformation was built upon that idea and those beliefs. It's the whole reason for the protest movement. If you're a Protestant, you're a protester. And you protested by way of of those who have come before us in the church. That's why Hebrews 11.6 states, without faith it's impossible to please God, no matter how much you work and how good a person you are. So yes, it's very important. And yet, even though faith is an important topic, it's also a confusing one. I've talked recently, (coughs) I've talked recently about how in response to the disciples coming to Jesus to increase their faith, great prayer request, Jesus responds by seeming to downplay the importance of faith. He talks about how you, if you even just have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, go into, into the ocean. It's confusing. Is faith important or, or not? There's another moment where A man comes to Jesus and he wants Jesus to heal his son and Jesus responds, everything is possible for the one who believes. And the man responds, I believe, help my unbelief. And what does Jesus do? He heals his his son. Which flies in the face of some streams of Christianity that suggests that we aren't healed because we lack faith. 
But this man confessed. He had unbelief, but Jesus still healed him. But then on the flip side of that, we read in other places that Jesus couldn't heal because of people's unbelief. Huh? He just healed the dude's son. And he said he had unbelief, but in other places, it seems like Jesus is handcuffed by people's unbelief. It's almost like the idea that is out there is that our faith is as important as Jesus if things are going to work. Really? Or at the very least, like I said before, Jesus is somehow handcuffed by our lack of faith. But maybe that's not it at all. Maybe it's not that Jesus couldn't heal because of people's lack of faith, but didn't heal because of people's lack of faith. And that's two entirely different things. Confused? Let's go into a time of response. No, that'd be great. How to, how to exit a church, right? Send you out totally, totally confused. I don't want to confuse you. I do want, I do want to prime the pump though. Because this is a really important topic, obviously. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to go to our text, one of my all-time favorite texts. And I know I say that every week, but this week this is. This is my favorite text this week. Next week we'll have another one. And I want us to see what we can learn about faith from this text. But in that, and even more importantly, what we can learn about Jesus as we spend some time focusing on this this topic of faith. Verse 17, back to the text. Look at, look at verse 17 one more time. It really sets the stage. On one of those days, while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They're in a house who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem and the Lord's power to heal was, was in him. So just let's catch everybody up. Uh, the fame of Jesus continues to spread. We've talked about that over the last couple of weeks, but now, in spite of having spent most of his time in and around Capernaum in the northern region of Galilee, the word has gone out everywhere. Not just in Galilee, people from towns in Galilee are coming, making their way to this area around the Sea of Galilee, Galilee, but we also read that people from Judea are coming, coming from the south, even from Jerusalem. Included in this large crowd that's gathered are Pharisees and teachers of the law or scribes. Who are these Pharisees? Pharisees was actually a pretty small group of people within Judaism, a sect of Judaism. They could be best described as people committed to being in but not of, uh, meaning they, they weren't like the Essenes. The Essenes was a group of people that went to the desert, they wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. The Pharisees stayed in cities, they stayed in villages, but they were really committed to not associating with certain groups of people. Sinners, tax collectors, Gentiles, Samaritans, and so forth. They were also very committed to a strict reading of the law and adhering to it and all sorts of traditions that were attached to it. They were separatists from that Vantage point, teachers of the law, scribes, experts in the law, especially the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, which simply means to guide or to teach. We sometimes refer to the first five books as the law, books of Moses, the Pentateuch. 
These two groups of people had heard about Jesus too, and some of them had made a 150-kilometer trek from Jerusalem by foot to where Jesus has been located over the last couple of chapters. But I think it's very safe to say, from what we read about these scribes and Pharisees in other places is that they didn't come to Jesus to learn from Jesus, but to critique Jesus and see if Jesus would say something that would be a cause for arrest, blasphemy, for example. I can say that because you read in places like Matthew 20, 22, verse 15, if my memory serves me well, and it doesn't always, that in Matthew 22, verse 15, they tried to plot against Jesus to see if they could catch him in his words. So that's this group of people. They've come. They've come to destroy. Really, that's their motive. Kill and destroy. Uh, it doesn't happen yet, but that certainly will bubble out of their hearts, right? We know their stories if we've if read the Gospels. So kill, destroy, critique, assess, catch them in some sort of statement that they could take him away because of. But how is Jesus described in verse 17? Total contrast. Luke points out that Jesus was there and the power to heal was in him. The showdown is set. This is like a movie. We've got that group, we've got Jesus. All we need now is something to spark things, right? A little bit of gasoline. Look at verse 18. Just then. That's great. Just then. Just got this going on. Everybody's there. Just then, some men came carrying on a stretcher, a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. I love this. You should love this too. We don't know who this man is. No name unnamed man, paralyzed. We don't know how he became paralyzed. Was he born that way? Or one day a tragic accident took place. We just, we aren't given that information. We just know he's paralyzed. And regardless of how this took place, it's tragic. Paralysis is tragic. Today it was tragic certainly then, but consider when this takes place. No wheelchairs, motorized scooters, elevators, ramps, parking places, places to sit, none of that. He had to be carried around. It's brutal. Today we have all of that. Then this paralyzed man, do you read what you read? Of course you read what you read. Do you read what it says? Do you read what you read? Do you read what it says in verse 17? It says they wouldn't even let him in, man. It's brutal again. Devastating. In fact, if left on his own, this man was in an impossible situation. But he wasn't left alone. Luke records that some men had come carrying him, which leads to the first thing that we discover about faith. If you like taking notes, here's the first thing that stands out. Faith is strengthened in community. As said, Luke points out that some men were carrying the man on the stretcher. We don't know who they are either. Unnamed. Unnamed. 
We could guess. We could, maybe some friends from the past, maybe some family members, maybe, maybe this man had to hire some people out. Doesn't tell us. But that would be a fair assumption until you get to verse 20. And in verse 20, it says that Jesus saw their faith. Whoever they are, family, friends, whoever, whoever they are, this is a faith collective. In fact, we don't even know if the faith of the paralytic is the strongest faith of the group. Doesn't say that. He may not even been truly convinced that Jesus could heal. Maybe it was somebody else hurt hearing about Jesus. Jimmy, Jesus came to town. I've heard he can heal. Ah, I don't believe it. No, let us take you there. Okay, I'll go with you. That may be what this is. We don't know. We just know that they came together. We just know that they were in this together, not just physically, but believingly. And I have to believe that their resolve to move forward was strengthened by their communal buy-in. Because three strands are stronger than one. In our study of the book of Ephesians, when we went through Ephesians chapter 2, especially verses 8 to 10, what we discover there is all people have been gifted the faith that they have to believe. It's a gift of God. Our faith is a gift of God. Jesus is, is the author of our faith. He's also the perfecter, but he is the author of our faith. So Ephesians makes that very clear. We have all been gifted faith. However, for those of you that took the spiritual gifts study or have done something like that in your past, you also know that there is a spiritual gift of faith, different than the faith that saves, a spiritual gift of faith. I do not have that gift. Not even close. Yes, I'm saved. I have faith. But that... I fight fear, I fight, I fight doubt, I fight despondency in my life more than I would care to admit. My wife, she has much faith. And there have been times, many times in my life where her gift of faith has kept me going especially when confronted with the difficult, the discouraging, and, and so on. We launched our community group ministry this week. Love our community group leaders. You should love them too. This is one of the reasons why we launched it. We need to be strengthened and encouraged by the faith of others and vice versa, especially for those, some of you, some of you, you just hang out with Pharisees and, and, and scribes. You know what I mean? Just tear down, tear down, destroy, critique. That's your whole life. Mock you. Have no time for you. That's your life. And you get beat up and beat up. And you need to have a place where you're strengthened by other people's faith. Who, who aren't there to tear you down, but edify. Edify means build up. 
Speaking of this, Paul writes, and you can read this behind me, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Do you know why Paul instructs the church to encourage one another? (laughs) Not a trick question. Because we get discouraged, man. Right? And we get torn down. Paul doesn't write instructions unless that's taking place in our lives. We need each other. We, we, we need people in our lives who share our faith. We all need this. And, and for those of you who feel like you're okay on your own and you don't need the support of others, can I, can I gently ask you to get over yourself? I say that sweetly. And challenge you to stop only thinking of your own interests and consider the interests of others too. Because you may walk into a living room and there's someone there paralyzed with fear and doubt and despondency and they need you to carry them. See, the fact of the matter is, in our lives, we are either carried or carriers. And sometimes we're carried and sometimes we're carriers and vice versa. We need each other. Midtown, we need each other. Second thing that we learn about faith. Faith should expect to encounter obstacles and break through them. Take a look at verse 19. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine just being home one night and somebody just drops in through your roof? I mean, talk about the tenacity of, of of this group. Um, But that's what takes place. Uh, I, I grew up in a real estate family. My dad worked in real estate his, his whole life, pretty much. He wasn't a real estate agent. He was a bean counter, but he was into real estate, and he, he invested in real estate throughout his, his life. And I think I got my sort of fondness for real estate from him. And whenever I drive around or walk around, I always like looking at houses, I like looking at houses, seeing what's going on, noticing what's taking place. Hey, look at that teardown, $7 million. That's interesting. wonder how that works. If I had the money to build my own house and I could draw up the plans, I would build a house with a flat roof. You know the ones I'm talking about? The flat ones? That you can go up, put your chair up there, summer nights, watch the sunset. If the fireworks are going on, watch the fireworks. I love houses like like that. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because if you like houses like that, you would love Galilee. You should get a place in Galilee because every house in Galilee had a flat roof and stairs going up the side of the house and the roof was made with tiles. And so when this group of guys see that the crowd had filled up the house, they head up. The stairs go to the roof, pull back the tiles, and they drop in this paralytic by way of ropes in front of Jesus. Owner must have been ticked. 
especially if they didn't get it right the first time. But that's what faith does. Faith is willing to risk. Going back to last week, faith doesn't only see the problem, but a solution for it. But here's what I want to make very clear to us by just asking a couple of questions. What drove the men? What moved them? Was it simply their faith? Well, the answer to that is no. It was their faith directed towards Jesus. Because faith by itself is worth nothing. Faith is only as strong as its source. So what drove the man up the stairs, dropped through the roof, was a belief that if Jesus is who he has said he is, or those who have seen him said he is, because of that faith in Jesus, it drove them forward. They had faith in that Jesus. Because again, that's what faith does when it's presented obstacles, when it's a faith directed towards Jesus. I mean, think about this. Hebrews chapter 11 uh, is called the faith chapter. Um, In it is a, a recording of what is sometimes referred to as the hall of faith. Moses, Noah, Noah, Sarah, Abraham. But when you read about them and their faith, it's always connected to an obstacle that had to be overcome. For Noah, by faith, he built an ark before it had rained. By Abraham, by faith, he left his hometown to a land that he didn't know about and that God would one day show him. By faith, Sarah believed that she would have a child of promise even though she was 90 and had never given birth before. By faith, Moses didn't give himself to being raised in Pharaoh's court but raised by his own people instead. All obstacles. They believed God and overcame that. All presented obstacles. Those were their stairs. Those were their rooftops. Those were their ropes. What are yours? Currently, what are yours? Because that's what faith is, and that's what faith does when it's a faith directed towards Jesus. Jesus, it enables us, it moves us, it drives us, which leads to something else we learn about faith that we've already touched upon, and that is faith is visible. Verse 20, what we began by reading, seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. At this point, faith is visible. I can't tell you how important this is in the whole discussion of faith. Because faith isn't merely belief. The demons believe. And they shudder. So it can't be mere belief. Back in chapter four, you remember the demons? The demons were the only ones in chapter four of Luke that cried out, this is the son of God. Nobody else did, just the demons. Does faith include belief? Well, certainly, but not only. Faith is belief and acting on that belief. 
Faith, as someone has described it, is active trust. Faith is not mere doctrinal assent. I believe in this, I believe in this, I believe in this. And nor is faith just simply a set of morals. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't, you know, date girls that do. Whatever that old thing is. It's terrible. It's terrible. Probably gets you fired today saying that publicly. I'm glad I didn't. Faith faith in simple terms is taking God at his word and building your life on it. Sticking with the, with the real estate discussion of a few minutes ago, faith is the concrete foundation and our lives are the house we build upon it. I can say that with conviction because that's exactly what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You can see it behind me. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So let's say you're a student. All of our students are gone, so terrible time to make this illustration. But let's say you're a student, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, whatever. The Bible says that you shouldn't have sex until you're married. The Bible says that if you get married, you should get married to someone who is also a lover of Jesus. You have a choice now. You can hear these words of the Lord who loves you desperately and build your life upon them. And in doing so, you build your life upon a rock. Or you can say, I'm not gonna take this call. I'm gonna build my house on something else. I'm gonna build my house on sand. I'm gonna swim downstream. I'm gonna go out in the world, I'm gonna swim downstream because swimming downstream is really easy. I don't want this. So I'm gonna do this, I'm not gonna build my house on a rock, I'm gonna build my house on, on, a, on the sand. Your choice, but that's your call. You've heard that's the call of God. But what Jesus also says is a storm is coming. A storm is coming. And the house of sand will crumble. But the house of, of rock, built on rock, will stand. Both are, going to, both are going to encounter storms. That's just one example. Because most of us don't get called by God to build an ark. Right? 30% maybe get called to build an ark. Right? but we have calls all over the place. Will you build your life on them? Believing that you're gonna be rock steady if you do. James picks this up in James chapter two, verse 14 when writing, what good is it my brothers and sisters if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? Well, the answer to that question, that rhetorical question, is no. And James isn't saying we are saved by our works. He's not saying that. And he's not saying, like the Catholics do, that we're saved by faith and works. We don't believe in that either. But saying that we are saved and only saved by a faith that reveals itself in works. Can't help but. In my backyard, I have a plum tree. 
Do you know why I know it's a plum tree? Yeah, there you go. You're listening. Praise God that you're listening. Because every year in summer, plums show up. Every year. And I go, that that's, has to be a plum tree. I'm no arborist, but that has to be a plum tree. Why? Because the fruit reveal what kind of, reveals what kind of tree it is. Now, I know, again, an arborist could come up to me and say, actually, I can tell that's a plum tree without even knowing or seeing any plums coming from it. To which I would reply, borrowing from James, what good is it then? Faith is belief with active trust. Our fruit will tell the world what kind of tree we are. I, I don't know who first said it, someone far smarter than me, but this person said that the church today is full of people who, who have a head full of belief, beliefs but live as functional atheists. Their belief, in other words, has never led to anything that can be seen by Jesus or anyone else. But going back to James, can such faith save? Let me give you the next three things that we learn about faith, but all at the same time. They all show up in verses 20 to 24. Here, here's the first, or here's all three, excuse me. Faith should expect the unexpected. That's number one. Faith will bring or invite ridicule. That's number two of these three. And then lastly, faith will lead to reward. Let's take them one at a time. The unexpected takes place in verse 20 when Jesus says to the paralytic, friend, your sins are forgiven. Lots of things stand out about this, right? Many things. One, it would have been obvious to the crowd that the reason this man was there was to be raised or healed from his paralysis, not receive forgiveness. But Jesus saw a paralysis of a greater kind. A paralysis of the soul that this man needed to be healed from most of all. A paralysis far more serious than even his inability to walk. And a paralysis midtown that we all share outside of our relationship with Jesus. What also stands out, and you can chew on this on your own, is that there is no verbal confession of repentance. But what there was, what Jesus saw, was their faith in who Jesus was, a healer of a greater kind. And the unexpected took place. And this man's Sins were forgiven, which leads to the ridicule that faith will sometimes bring. It's seen in verse 21, then the scribes and the Pharisees, remember them, began to think to themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You've all heard of the expression, out of the mouth, mouths of babes. You know what that means? I think we, I think we all do. It, it, it means that every once in a while, small children will say something and they go, wow, that was certainly wise, deep, 
significant. That's taking place in verse 21. Verse 21 is one of those times when the Pharisees think to themselves, is, excuse me, is a time where the Pharisees think to themselves, who can forgive sins but, but God alone? That's true. And he just did. Now, now the skeptic may push back and say, I can forgive a person's sin. If somebody does something against me and comes up and says, hey, man, I'm really sorry for what I did, I can say, you're forgiven. I've just forgiven that person's sin. And my, my response to that would be, I agree, but not ultimately. Not ultimately. For ultimately, all sin, all sin, is a sin against God and not just each other. All sin ultimately is a choice for our glory over God's glory, as Paul writes in Romans, writing that all sin falls short of God's glory as it seeks our glory instead, and therefore all sin ultimately needs to be forgiven by him. That's why when David writes, remember King David? Adultery, murder, treachery. Adultery, Bathsheba, murders Uriah, treachery against the nation that he's a monarch, the king of. He's, he's, he's convicted of his sin. His sin is revealed. And in Psalm 51, it records the confession of David coming out of that horrific sin, that whole episode that went over a, a season of his life. And he writes, against you, God, you alone I have sinned. What are you talking about, David? You've sinned against a whole nation of people. You've killed. You had an affair. You committed adultery. What are you talking about? He's affirming what we see here. All sin ultimately, ultimately is against God and needs to be forgiven by him. That's, by the way, the only way this makes sense in verse 20. It only makes sense because it seems like this is the first time Jesus has met this paralytic. And yet he forgives his sin. That doesn't make any sense. If you're having a fight with somebody, you're going at it, cats and dogs, you're going at it, and, and, and one, of, one of you is really wrong, the other, the other really doesn't want to say sorry, and you're just going at it, and I walked into, into that conversation, and I looked at one of the people there, and I said, hey, I just want to let you know I forgive you. You'd be like, what? What do you mean you forgive him? You can't forgive him. I have to forgive him. He wronged me. And yet Jesus says to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven. That's what Jesus does here. And therefore, that only makes sense if Jesus is God and God alone. Because only God can forgive sins. The Pharisees didn't see Jesus that way, as we know. But what they're about to see is that their ridicule leads to a further reward for the paralytic. 
Look at verses 22 to 24. But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. A few minutes left. What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, the obvious answer is your sins are forgiven because you can't really see that. Get up and walk demands that somebody actually gets up and walk. What's better though? Well, it depends on your perspective. From Jesus' perspective, forgiveness is paramount and and what this man needed most, it's what we need most too. We all have a spiritual paralysis and Jesus is the only one empowered to get us up and walking again or for the first time. So what's easier to say? What's, What's better? Here's the last question. What costs more? Get up and walk, or your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk was only a word to Jesus. But forgiving this man's sin demanded that his sins be paid for. For the wages of sin is death, and therefore death needs to be paid. In fact, and we're going to see this as we continue to walk through the Gospel of Luke, it's moments like this where Jesus doing what he does and saying what he says in the presence of his opponents makes his death certain. Because as I said on the front end, they, they want to destroy him and, and in about three years' time they do. But Jesus needed to be destroyed for this man's sins to be forgiven. For our sins too. You see, Midtown, God doesn't only forgive our sin. He he dies for it. And only God and God alone can. And he did. And his name is Jesus. You see why this is one of my favorites? My favorite this week? What? What a savior. As we begin wrapping up, and I know we need to, we are again reminded here the the role that the the miraculous signs of Jesus play in his ministry. It's really important to have a healthy theology of the miraculous. The miraculous signs of Jesus' ministry serve as validation that what he says is. That he is who he says he is 
and what he claims is true and that he has authority to claim it. So that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, get up and walk. That's the role the miraculous plays in the ministry life of Jesus. So faith is strengthened in community. Faith should expect obstacles and break through them. Faith is visible. Faith should expect the unexpected. Faith will face ridicule. And faith will be rewarded. And finally, faith. You and I living lives, building lives upon the claims and the word of Jesus, that kind of faith will lead to praise. Verses 25 and 26. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe. Literally, awe took them over. Isn't that great? And said, we have seen incredible things today. I don't know if they talk like that. It's kind of funny. Oh, so good. They went home astounded, glorifying God which is the only proper response. When God enables someone to walk away anew, both physically and spiritually. And that's what faith in Jesus does. I gotta close. Uh, This week, I got into a conversation, Pat was there as well, um, with uh, a gentleman that oversees the painting crew that's helping with the the renovation. We got into a conversation, he was sharing his story, he had an accent, I said, where are you from, man? He said, I'm from Yugoslavia originally, but living here now. Just kind of doing a bit of a back and forth, and he was sharing some things, and I I asked him, do you have any religious background? What's, what's your story? He said, I grew up Catholic, but I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore. And then he shared his belief now in, in, in the power of the universe, the, the, the power and the, the energy and the force in the universe and that we are all part of it. He then made mention, and he was quick to point out, he didn't want to offend us, that um, he believed Jesus was a seer, S-E-E-R. And, and one who had tapped into that power. I just listened for the most part, but as things were wrapping up and he was getting ready to go and we were going as well, I just said, so I, wanna, I wanna say something just about your comment about Jesus. One of the things I said that I find interesting about people's ideas of Jesus and, and the things they attach to Jesus aren't things that Jesus claimed of, of himself. And that, that always, always find that interesting. And they downplay other things that Jesus did say of himself. And I find that interesting too. I I bring this up because do you realize in this what we've learned about Jesus from this text? He's all-knowing. He perceived their thoughts. He's all powerful. The power to heal was in him. He's all divine. Only God and God alone can forgive. And because he is, he has authority to forgive our sin and is worthy of our awe and worship. We've learned all that in a handful of verses. Amen. Exactly. And so as we move into a time of response, 
I want to point out just one other thing we learn about Jesus and about faith from this text. Jesus invites it. Jesus came into town and these men moved in faith towards him. Jesus invites our faith today too, even if it's mixed with unbelief. Even if right now, it's the size of a mustard seed. He invites it. He invites it. Even if you feel right now, you have to be carried here. Paralyzed. He invites it. Don't allow the crowds, don't allow the obstacles, don't allow the ridicule to keep you from coming from Jesus. Come to him. Breakthrough. Breakthrough. You'll receive the unexpected and you will be rewarded forever and it will lead to worship. Amen? Would you rise? Let me pray. Ah, Jesus. Jesus. I thank you for the Bible. I thank you for the Bible. I thank you for your word. I thank you for for this moment in history where we get to observe you, Jesus, and learn from you and be strengthened by you. I, I thank you for these these men who carried this paralytic and, 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 and how they encountered you in that and, and revealed things to them that are as true for us today. I thank you. Help us, though, put it into practice to act upon it, to build our lives upon it, to to living lives in light of who you are, what you've promised to us. Just worship you. We thank you. Help us. I I pray especially today for those who are feeling, as I've said a number of times, paralyzed. I pray that they would come to you today. If they're just full of unbelief, I pray for those who are feeling strong today that they would come alongside the weak and help them, encourage them, build them up. I pray for those that don't know you, that are living lives right now believing if they just got a better car, more cash, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, their lives would be set when you're looking at them and and seeing that they have a much greater need, a paralysis that they need to be healed from. So I pray that they would come to you today as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.